entrepreneurs, business leaders, and professionals who seek excellence. Bringing the business classroom to you. It's the Business Builders Show on the Business Builders Media Network. Here's Marty Wolf. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Business Builders Show with Marty Wolf, the show for entrepreneurs, business owners, and business leaders. I'm Marty Wolf, your host for the Business Builders Show, which is a production of Business Builders Media. You can get all our shows and podcasts from more great podcasters at businessbuildersmedia.com, where we give entrepreneurs and business leaders the tools they need to have their voices heard. That's businessbuildersmedia.com. I have two folks I would like to introduce to you today. The first is Gary Heil. Gary will be my co-host for this edition of the Business Builder Show, and I'm looking forward to that. And a quick intro for Gary Heil. He is a best-selling author and co-author of a great book called Choose Love, Not Fear. Gary is a Washington Speakers Bureau exclusive speaker and host of Leadership Lessons from the Fast Lane. And our special guest today is Alfie Cohn. Alfie, welcome to the Business Builder Show. Thank you. Uh, thrilled you're here. Uh, Gary and I are fans, so I'm going to introduce Alfie, and then we're going to get into what I expect to be a very interesting discussion. Alfie Cohn writes and speaks widely on human behavior, education, and parenting. The author of 14 books and hundreds of articles, he lectures at education conferences and universities as well as to parent groups and corporations. Cohn's criticisms of competition and rewards have been widely discussed and debated, and he has been described in Time magazine as, quote, perhaps the country's most outspoken critic of education's fixation on grades and test scores, end of quote. So, Alfie, um, yeah, your uh, your ideas have been debated. I, I don't want to debate them today. I just like talking about them. And so, uh, Gary, I think we're ready to go. Um, so let's start this way. Um, we're going to quote from your book, one of your books. The title of that is Punished by Rewards, The Trouble with Gold Stars, Incentive Plans, A's, Praise, and Other Bribes. In the first paragraph of the first chapter, the title of that chapter is Skinner Boxed, The Legacy of Behaviorism. So stay with me, audience. Stay with me. I'm reading this paragraph, and then we're going to get Alfie's feedback. Here it is. There is a time to admire the grace and persuasive power of an influential idea. And there is a time to fear its hold over us. The time to worry is when the idea is so widely shared that we no longer even notice it, when it is so deeply rooted that it feels to us like, plain common sense. At the point where objections are not answered anymore because they are no longer even raised, we are not in control. We do not have the idea. It has us. First paragraph of that book, Alfie. Tell us about that. Is that uh, was It was obviously relevant when you wrote it. Is it still relevant today? Well, that sort of casts a that's a very general statement about any idea that we've stopped noticing and criticizing and take for granted, not aware of it anymore the way a fish is 
not really aware it's in water. I proceed in the remainder of that book to talk about one such idea, which I describe as pop behaviorism. And that is the idea that the way to motivate people is to dangle a goodie in front of them, uh, to say to folks, in effect, do this and you'll get that. And I argue in that book that that has become the conventional wisdom uh, in the workplace as well as in schools and families. And uh, yes, it continues to be true, although it has taken uh, different, different forms. There have been different nuances, but it continues to be the case, A, that most of us are pop behaviorists, Skinnerians, whether we uh, acknowledge that or not, and B, that it doesn't make any sense. And in fact, a 25th anniversary edition of that book was released recently, which is a frightening prospect mm. because it must mean I wrote the book when I was in fourth grade. I can see no other explanation. Um, but I, when I released the 25th anniversary edition, I delved back into the research to look at what in the last couple of decades has been found. Um, and once again, it turns out to be the case that rewards like punishments are not just ineffective in the long run, but actively counterproductive. Hmm. Gary Heil, you're in the corporate world and you're in the education world. What would you respond or add to or give us some additional insights, however you want to phrase that, about what, uh, what uh, Alfie just told us? Well, I think my attraction to Alfie's work and book started when he wrote No Contest and was in the Deming Library when I was a Baldrige examiner. But I think that even as the head of public compensation committees, when I would not try to quote Alfie, but try to, um, I guess, advocate for positions where bribes destroy intrinsic motivation, um, people would look at me like I had spinach in my teeth. Because as Alfie said in the first paragraph of that book, uh, we no longer question whether rewards um, have efficacy. We assume they do. And there's a legion of consultants and compensation consultants that agree with that. I, my question really around this is not whether Alfie's right or not. I, I believe he's right. I believe the research shows he's right. I think his books are deep in the research for years and years that demonstrate that rewards can be and usually are counterproductive to intrinsic motivation. The question for me, largely, Alfie, is why? I mean, when you wrote it, it wasn't a new idea. Maslow and McGregor debated the same issue across Boston in the mid-1950s. And Dan Pink's made a living after writing Drive, trying to take some parts of that research and show that you know, behavior modification is not a theory of human motivation. But still, after the brilliance of your books and Maslow McGregor's legacy and Dan Pink's fame these days, still, the major theory of motivation when people get behind closed doors and you ask them how are people motivated, uh, what you call pop behaviorism, still seems to be the norm. And the question is why? Because I think until we can understand why it continues to be perpetuated, I don't think we can change it. Yes, I agree with that. But let's take a step back, perhaps, just in case any of your listeners um, aren't familiar with the motivational theory here. And I don't mean the roots of humanistic theory and critique of management of Maslow and Douglas McGregor. 
Um, I mean, specific with respect to motivational psychology. So I think, and this also serves to answer your question about why it's so hard to uproot or dislodge something that really makes no sense, according to both good theory and research. And that's because we have, most of us, in our minds, a kind of common sense, unquestioned view of motivation, that it exists as a single entity. It's a bunch of stuff you can have that can go up or down as if it's on a hydraulic lift. You can have more of this stuff called motivation or less of this stuff. And most managers, like teachers and parents, want the people with less power over whom they have some control to have more of this stuff called motivation. And so they typically resort to what comes easiest, which is some version of a bribe or a threat. Either do this or here's what I'm going to do to you to make you suffer, or do this and you'll get that. And I think it's important to point out here to emphasize that rewards and punishments are not opposites. They're just two sides of the same coin. And, and that coin doesn't buy very much. But the reality is that there are different kinds of motivation and the kind matters more than the amount. I don't care how motivated your employees are. Uh, I care how your employees are motivated. And what we've known since the early 70s, at least, and the work of Ed DC and Rich Ryan at the University of Rochester and their st subsequent students and collaborators around the globe, Mark Lepper at Stanford and others, is that there are basically two kinds of motivation. This is still an oversimplification as most dichotomies are, but it's a lot closer to the truth. Intrinsic motivation means you find something valuable, fulfilling, um, meaningful in its own right, and that's why you do it. Extrinsic motivation, by contrast, means you are doing it because of something um, outside of or extrinsic to the task, like getting a reward for doing it. Now, it's not just true that intrinsic and extrinsic motivation are different, though they surely are. And it's not even just that intrinsic is superior in that it provides a deeper, richer, more enduring kind of motivation. People who really get a kick out of what they're doing are likely to do that task better and for longer than those who are doing it just to get a gold star or a bonus or a, or a grade or whatever. While you were That's speaking, really Alfie, again, our guest is Alfie Cohn, K-O-H-N. And while you were speaking, the words that you talk a lot about in all your work, I guess, but definitely in, in no contest, is the idea of competition versus cooperation. And if we can go down that path a little bit, and I, I think that aligns with our discussion. Can we go down that path a little bit? Yes, except you cut me off right in the middle of the punchline here. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. Thought. Go to the punchline. So it's not just that intrinsic motivation is different and superior. It's that intrinsic motivation is actually undermined by extrinsic motivators. That's mm. the key. That's mm. why rewards aren't just ineffective. It's why they cause intrinsic motivation to evaporate. Or to put it differently, the more you reward people for doing something, the more they tend to lose interest in whatever they had to do to get the reward. As a result of that, the quality of most work or learning declines along with the intrinsic motivation. 
So the key here is to understand that there are different types of motivation and the kind provided by any kind of extrinsic inducement, any kind of doggy biscuit in the workplace, the classroom or whatever, is likely to have a detrimental effect on the intrinsic interest that turns out to lead to both joy and quality of work. Now, one of the most destructive forms of extrinsic motivation is the kind where I'm not just trying to do something so I get a goodie, but what's even worse than that is I'm trying to do something so I get a goodie that not everybody else can get. And thus, to speak to your, your question, competition is a uniquely toxic extrinsic motivator, which sets us against one another. It's bad enough to be rated, reduced to numerical terms, especially if that's gonna determine uh, the size of our paycheck. What's worse than being rated is being ranked against one's colleagues. Or to put it differently, what's worse than a reward is an award. An award is a reward that's been made artificially scarce. So if I get it, you probably can't. And there's a whole separate body of research showing that competition is uniquely counterproductive, particularly for tasks that require some degree of ingenuity or uh, creativity and so on. Now, to come back to the the, the earlier question that, that Gary's asking, if we know this, if the research has been around for decades, why are we still treating people like pets? Why is the average American corporation like a giant Skinner box with a parking lot? And why in the worst corporations do we actually have employees who are ranked against each other where you, if Anything I get is, is set up in a zero-sum game, so you can't. So one answer to that is, a the most charitable answer is a lot of people just don't know about this research. Um, and a second possible answer is doing things to employees is a lot easier than working with them. And rewards like punishments are about manipulation. They're about control. If I use punishments, it's obvious I'm trying to control you with threats. But if I, if I use rewards, it's sugar-coated control, but it's still control. And that leads to another explanation, which is that reward systems like incentive plans, bonuses, pay for performance schemes, primarily benefit the people who administer them in the upper echelons of management because they keep them comfortably in power. If I've learned one thing about rewards over the last 30 years that I've been working on this topic, it's that rewards are primarily about power. Those who have it reward those who don't to make the ladder jump through their hoops. And so it would require a, a much more democratic organization and a more egalitarian distribution of authority to move away from a carrot and stick approach. And that's one reason they continue to stay in place even though they don't work well. Well, one thing we know, Alfie, from, from the past 20 years of you having some devotees out there like <laughs> me, is that if I stand up in front of a group of a thousand managers and I preach a similar gospel, okay, mm -hmm. um, 
and they're now aware. And they tell me they're aware, but still they don't change. One of those reasons goes out the window because they're all cognitively aware. I think the interesting thing that I've always wondered about your take on is that, you know, although in the 70s, those guys were working on it, actually, McGregor and Maslow had this really interesting debate. And Maslow was thinking about these terms before he died. And when he would talk to McGregor, who at first he didn't respect as much, but when he talked to McGregor, McGregor was saying that he thought that intrinsic motivation was underplayed because people just didn't believe that people would naturally seek responsibility and become intrinsically motivated at work. And he thought that we continued to treat them like pets with some behavioristic manipulation because we believe that they just weren't naturally motivated and need to be jump-started. Isn't there a view of the world that says that we just don't believe human beings are that good or altruistic in some at, at some point. Yeah, that's that's was McGregor's great contribution is theory X and theory Y. You know the the idea yeah. that that it's not just the use of incentive plans, but also surveillance, which of course now has taken on a dystopian high tech uh, aura to it. Um, the extreme specific quantifiable top-down goals and objectives that are set down from the people with the power to those without. All of that comes from a dark view of human nature that says you got to watch people every moment, you got to bribe and threaten them, otherwise they'll do as little as they can get away with, as opposed to what he called theory Y, which is that nobody comes to work in the morning to do a crappy job. And if people are cutting corners, uh, if they're getting away with as little as they can, the problem is not with the organism, not with human nature or the workers. The problem is with the structure imposed on the workers that quite quite logically lead people to do as little as they can get away with. For as a matter example, of fact, Elfie, isn't it true that if I write a if I write a note about a teacher or a manager who has a highly structured environment in which people are held accountable, given specific goals, you know, and held accountable for achieving those goals, and those goals are celebrated. That's one thing. And if I write a counter story that says that there is this teacher or coach or leader who really cares deeply and loves their team and gives them freedom to play and learn and be creative, if I take those two stories out, most of the research would show that the better leader of the two is going to see the, be the one that's structured, that held people accountable, not the one that loved them into learning through fun. Well, you're saying people would assume that the first yes. leader is better or more effective? Yes, would assume. Uh, not. Uh, I certainly don't believe it's true. But if you said, w- there's a bunch of research about creativity the same way, but yeah. it seems like people would go, see, that's a very structured, button-down leader, and this guy's a little naive out there, this loving yeah. guy. Right, I, I, because you, you, you can always seem more sophisticated if you are more cynical and assume the worst about folks. But what's interesting is uh, one line of research you may be familiar with that said, when you ask people, uh, when you ask managers, for example, what motivates you? What do you look for in a job? What gets your engines mm-hmm. firing? They will typically say things like, the chance to have some autonomy and make decisions about what I do every day. Uh, mm-hmm. The chance to collaborate uh, and be with other good people who stimulate my thinking, the chance to have different kinds of tasks 
so I'm not in a rut and I get to explore and learn new kinds of things. Uh, that's, that goes way ahead of anything else. But then if you ask those managers, what do you think motivates your employees? They'll say, oh, money. You know? yeah, exactly. So gotta... I, I think the numbers in that research are like 75% of the people will talk about intrinsic motivation, but it applies to them and only about 12% of them think it applies to anybody else they work with. Exactly. And part of that is self versus others. Yes. But a lot of it is powerful people versus less powerful people. And it gets to various, you know, deeply rooted class bias uh, issues and, and so on. Um, so people may well have this this dark view of others, especially the unwashed masses that they're not going to do anything. But in fact, those people are behaving quite quite rationally. As soon as you say, do this and you'll get that, you've set a ceiling where they have no interest in, um, in challenging themselves anymore. We see this in with classroom research. In, in traditional schools that give students grades, uh, the more uh, salient the grade is, the more you emphasize the grade, the more students will pick the shortest book or the most familiar topic for a project. Um, not because they're lazy, not because they lack a growth mindset, but because, duh, you know, the chances of my, of my getting what you want me to get an A are higher if I'm doing something that's simple. So, isn't it true, Alfie, that over time, it changes the culture so dramatically? I walked in to do a, uh, a lecture in a behavioral economics class at USD, and I, I didn't even hardly get in the class. And this woman stands and says, can I ask a question? I said, what? And she says, is this going to be on the test? Right. I, I have no idea what the test is. I'm just a guest lecturer. You have to ask the professor over there. And See, I would have what? treated that question as a teachable moment. Now Let me tell you what I did. You tell me how I, I should have done it. What <laughs> I did was I said to her, I said, well, what about learning? She says, I don't have time for learning. I said, you're paying 60 grand a year and you don't have time for learning. She says, no, my, my job is to come get grades to go to grad school. Yeah. And I said, you spend 60 grades, just 60 grand a year, just for the grades. And she says, yes. And I'm like, there must be a, somebody else you could bribe less than 60 grand to get an A. <laughs> but, but the idea being is I didn't even get in the class as a guest lecturer before somebody's accosting me about the test and her grade. Is right. there some point Alfie where we, where we do this for so long that we don't long, we, as you said, we no longer see it anymore. I mean, I asked the professor at the end of the class, Alfie, I said, uh, I said, why don't we, don't you know, have, I basically said truthfully, I said, have you read Alfie Cohen's book? I said, you know, I think he's right. I think grades inhibit learning. And the teacher goes, I agree with you, but nobody at the school does. And I want to keep my job. And, you know, and if you, then, then she goes, and if you didn't have grades, I don't think any of these kids would come to class. And I'm going, we're fighting a big battle. <laughs> yeah, but that's that can be a powerful indictment of the pedagogy and curriculum of the instructor who holds that to be true. If students wouldn't come, part of it is because they've been socialized, as I think is what you're getting at. But, mm -hmm. but in many cases, if students wouldn't come to class without that, that, that is a mirror that we're holding up to the way we're teaching and what we're teaching that says this is of so little intrinsic value to the students that it, we are leading them to see it as just a means to an end. 
And by the way, the idea that, oh, well, what can you do, shrug, that's just the way school is, that's just the, what students expect, it's just what my administrators demand, and so on, is a very unpersuasive cop-out. In fact, there's a brand new book that just came out last month. I uh, wrote the foreword to it called Ungrading, which is the collection of essays by college teachers who have figured out how to minimize or eliminate all grades in their classrooms, even while they have to turn in a grade for students at the end of the term, because they've taken responsibility, just as middle managers can in some companies, for at least minimizing the damage while they simultaneously organize and mobilize to change the structures, which, by the way, are not decreed by from the heavens. I the totally, I totally agree, Alphonse. I think you'd make a great point there because the minute that a teacher decides that they can just do grades and manipulate people into attendance, there's no impetus for them to be interesting or creative. The same way a manager who can manipulate my rewards and think that they're motivating me, there's no real impetus on them to create an opportunity that is intrinsically interesting and provides meaning in my life. And the more that these teachers and managers, in my experience, um, rely on manipulations of extrinsic motivators or extrinsic rewards, mm-hmm. the less interesting in general they become because they don't feel as ne- as as much of a requirement to, to create an interesting, compelling, meaning-filled environment. Do you find that at all? I mean, I, I just see uh, Yes, it. and it I think it speaks stuff. to your original question about why these things persist. They're expected. Uh, they're easier, you know, to, to work with employees to figure out what's wrong with the system that is inhibiting optimal performance or to work with students to figure out how learning can be deeper and more meaningful takes time it takes energy it takes talent it takes care and it above all it takes courage because you have to be willing to consider that what you as the powerful person have have asked might be problematic that might be your problem um but to to dangle an uh, a bonus or an a in front of somebody takes very little time uh energy care talent, and above all, courage. And that's another reason it persists. Uh, Another reason I might add beyond that is um, rewards and punishments work in the short run to get one thing and only one thing, which is temporary compliance, but at a huge cost. If I offered you $1,000 right now to take off your shoes, you know, I'm sure you would do it. And I could say, see, rewards work. But the damage that rewards do to both quality and intrinsic motivation isn't always um, up above the surface where we can see it. There's a dotted line that connects the use of rewards to the destructive effects that I've described and that others describe. And so if all you see is the short-term, quantitative, superficial uh, effectiveness, and you don't see the enormous destructive effects then you're going to have every reason to keep doing it. And it's harder to see the destructive effects, Alfie, I I would argue, in environments like work today where only arguably 30% 
of the employees are highly engaged in their work and up to 17% are already demotivated to the point that they're working against the goals of the company that's paying them. So where you have 70% of the people that are not highly engaged and a quarter, almost a fifth of them are highly disengaged, it's harder to see the negative effects because the culture is already yeah, that's upside right. down. And, yeah. and what makes what makes a work environment more effective beyond the absence of bribes and threats, what we have to do proactively and affirmatively, because I think getting rid of rewards in a, in a school or a company is necessary for quality, but not sufficient. But then we have to do the, what real managers and leaders do, which I describe in my book as uh, three C's. One C is the content. The, the work has to be experienced as meaningful and connected to goals that people have. A second C is collaboration, to work in a place where people are pulling for each other, exactly what all contests and competition kill, incidentally. And the third C is choice. You know, the, the extent to which folks at all levels of an organization have some say about what it is that they and their team are doing that they are entrusted with making decisions is a direct and powerful predictor of both their investment in it and enjoyment of it and the quality that they do. So the absolute opposite of the control provided by rewards and punishments is not just the absence of rewards and punishments, but a deliberate proactive effort to have a more democratic organization where each person is pretty excited to come to work in the morning because the work is worth doing. I'm doing it with others I value, and we get some say about what we're doing and how and why. So in addition to what um, our conversation uh, today, Alfie, what additional, you, you went to the positive, well, what can we do kind of thing in the thought process. We have lots of CEOs, lots of managers, and lots of educators listening to this interview. So as specific as you can, what would a manager, CEO, uh, educator do? They listen to this. What should they be looking up in addition to your work? What should they be reading? What would be your recommendations to take action now? Well, uh, the, even to talk about to all managers is, is, uh, is difficult because of the gradations and differences in the kinds of organizations they have, let alone trying to say something specific to managers and teachers at the same time. It's hard to offer a one-size-fits-all set of recommendations that apply to very divergent circumstances. That's why I'm staying at the level of give people more say, make it more collaborative. Begin by looking at the research so that you're willing to challenge your premises as well as your practices, the things you assumed were true about human nature, as we discussed, about the nature of motivation, about what your long-term goals are beyond just boosting the numbers for this coming quarter. Um, and then when you look at the, the long-term goals, what do you hope for? You begin to realize that the traditional status quo is actually making it harder. And then there's loads of resources on you know, my, my late friend Peter Schultes has a wonderful book called The Team Handbook that I recommend. He came out of the Deming tradition, and he talks about 
many of these same ideas from a slightly different perspective, why we have to get rid of not only pay for performance, but annual performance reviews um, and how that's really, as Peter Block said, you know, the, the occasion on which you are reminded who owns you. That's the opposite of what people need to, to be more effective. So there, there are, there are I, I would say if I had to summarize it in, in a, a good start for a manager or teacher in, in four words, it would be talk less, ask more. Do more eliciting of the experience of these folks and listen without getting defensive and huffy to what is wrong with the current situation and be willing to ask the radical questions. And I use radical in the original Latin sense of that word. Radical comes from the root meaning root. Um, so we're not just asking, how do we, this is what the behavioral economists do, is they just tweak the fundamental behaviorism that's baked into all neoclassical economics. So instead of asking what kind of incentives and on what schedule should we provide them, fire all those consultants and ask, why would we ever use any kind of incentive given that there is an inherent problem with the whole theory of motivation on which all such plans uh, are based. Be willing to ask the deeper questions and to do some serious listening to all the folks to whom the status quo is done. So be courageous. We've used that word several times. Uh, we need to wrap up, Gary Heil. Thank you for taking time to be with us. Anything you'd like to add or one final question uh, for Alfie? Well, I, have, I have a thought I'd like Alfie to comment on uh, when I the last couple minutes, I think, are extremely interesting, especially around appraisals and stuff. One of the things that's pretty interesting about Alfie's work is he makes the comment that when you inhibit intrinsic motivation, you inhibit learning dramatically. In a world where nothing is the same year after year and where innovation is a currency that we need to seek, learning becomes this unquestionably more important capability for all of us, whether we call it learnability or learning organization or whatever buzzword people put on it. But these things like appraisals that Alfie's talking about inhibit learning, I believe, dramatically. I'd love his comment on that because if there's one way to undermine it, what's really clear about these extrinsic manipulations is that by undermining learning, they almost undermine everything that has to do with creating a different future tomorrow than exists today. Do you believe in that, Alfie, or no? Yeah, I do. I think that's why the use of rewards and sanctions are profoundly conservative, which gets back to my point, maybe you've put it slightly differently, but I, if I understand you correctly, I think we're aligned here. Rewards and punishments, performance appraisals, very specific top-down objectives and so on, keep a very thin band of powerful people in power. That's why it's, it's so hard to, um, to, to rock that boat and why they will claim they're just being realistic or under pressure from the market or from the board or whatever it is. These are rationalizations for a, a status quo where I, I'll, I'll do one more piece in Latin, even though I don't really speak Latin. My favorite question is always cui bono, C-U-I-B-O-N-O, -O, which, which is 
basically a way of saying who benefits from this? Who, who benefits from incentive plans and, and, and bonuses for salespeople and contests that set people against each other? It's not the people on the bottom. It never is. And ultimately, it doesn't benefit the organization to the extent, as you rightly put it, it inhibits learning. And learning is not just something that makes life worth living. It's also something that makes organizations effective tomorrow. Mm. So our guest has been Alfie Cohn. Um, you can go to his website. Correct me if I'm wrong, Alfie, but I believe it's alfiecohn.org. Is that correct? That's right, K-O-H-N. Yeah, and so go to that, go to the website. You can see all his work there, his available, the the papers, the books, etc. cetera. Uh, remarkable discussion, Alfie. Um, just thank you so much for your time. Gary Heil, thank you so much for your contribution to the Business Builder Show. This is going to make a difference. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to The Business Builders Show on the Business Builders Media Network. Find all our shows and many other great podcasts at businessbuildersmedia.com. That's businessbuildersmedia.com.